Hi everybody, welcome to the Colour Not On Tour podcast. My name is Warren Eagles, I'm based in Brisbane, Australia, and I'm going to be talking to colourists around the world about what it's like to colour correct and live in their town. Ready to have some fun? If you look inside, you can see every possible colour. So welcome to the Colour Not On Tour podcast. Really pleased to have Walter on the show. So enlightening about what he's done. He's great at sharing knowledge and uh, I'm really looking forward to talking to him. Shame we can't be there, but we all know the situation we're in. I think this is the next best thing to do it virtually online. So uh, I hope you enjoy enjoy the chat. So welcome, Walter. Um, Walter is an esteemed colorist that I've met on a number of times in LA and he has, I'm going to embarrass him by talking about some of his credits, Uh, quite big movies like Green Book, Star Wars, The Last Jedi, Dunkirk, Hateful Eight and a movie called uh, Bad Mums. Was that that one of your highlights, that one there? Uh, you know, actually, Bad Moms was done by STX if, STX, if I remember correctly. Yeah. And that was their first big hit. So, in a way, yes, it's still, it's still a good movie because for STX, it's, it turned their fortune from a studio that was barely surviving to now we are making money. You know, every project is a good project. It doesn't really I agree. Not a bad project. No, but that's good when you get involved in a project, isn't it? And you think this could go somewhere and when it does well and it makes some money, that's really cool. Yeah. And I've done a few like that and that's, that's I, good I remember, fun. You mentioned, I remember watching the preview for uh, uh, Green Book. We were supposed to just watch the, the original, the fin- sorry, the preview DCP for screening and at that point, uh, uh, it was still, you know, an avid output with some of the things not well refined. But I was watching the movie thinking, this movie's good. It's honestly really good. I want to work on this one. And it's, it, it's a good feeling when you know you have a good movie on your belt. There is another project that I can't talk about that I just finished that will come up probably in the theater if the theater is open in the beginning of next year. And it had the same feel, like maybe it's not an Academy Award worth movie, but it's a good project. It's something that is really fun to work with. Yeah. Uh, you can tell us there's only three people listening to this podcast. It won't go anywhere. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> so let's, let's jump right up to date. So you're, you're at Company 3 now, and yes. you go on the Company 3 website. There's about 50 colorists there. There's a big team, isn't it? But that's all around the States, isn't it? What happened is, uh, if, if you backtrack you know, a few years, Deluxe, uh, what we remember, Deluxe, the, 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 the film production company, the, the, you know, the, the labs, uh, they cease to exist, but they, buy, they bought through the year different companies. So Company 3 was part of the Deluxe group. E-Film was the historic post-production house for Deluxe. Encore was a historic TV. Uh, we have Stereo D, some VFX company. And in the last two, three years, I got hired by eFilm almost two years ago now. We were talking about simplify the structure. So there was a restructure of debt a couple of years ago, um, a year and some ago. 
and part of the deluxe now went away. The distribution part of it and the brand deluxe was bought about three months ago, four months ago. They give us an excellent um, point where we are not married to that brand anymore. We can rebrand itself. So we basically made uh, eFilm, Encore, and other brand obsolete and just be company tree. We are company tree at the moment. And you will have the historical company tree at Expo Santa Monica. We are company tree Hollywood Las Palmas. So when you see all these colorists, you are, you are putting together a tree facility in Hollywood, Toronto, New York, London, Bangalore. Um, so yes, there is a big roster. We are not all in Hollywood. We are splitting around, so to speak. Yeah, because I've been to that Santa Monica facility and I've also been to the e-film facility, but yeah. just probably before you were there, uh, when I met our uh, ex-colleague, Mr. Jay-Z. Oh, Jay-Z. I like yeah. Jay-Z. Oh, yeah. He's a, he is a very good a color man. And, uh, <laughs> Unfortunately, so, I have to say he got victim of COVID um, layoffs. So at the moment, he is actually not part of the of our family anymore. I'm really sad about it. You know, with, with what happened with COVID um, and the closure of, you know, all the shooting, there is really the, the, the amount of work dropped by 70, 80%. So yeah. each company is struggling to basically try to stay afloat. So it's, uh, it's as simple as that. I mean, it, it's the sad reality of if nobody shoot, our job is irrelevant. Yeah, because and then because it then takes the the three months in editing and the post the VFX, yeah. and we normally get our bit at the end, don't we? Yeah. So let I mean, there we are. It's, yeah, we uh, a little bit also during the shooting itself uh, because we also serve the production all the daily and, you know, uh, the managing of the assets and everything that happened during the daily. But like you say, if nobody shoot, those people have nothing to do. And so how's it affected you? Are you, you working at home studio or are you in at the office? How's it working? So one thing we got, um, a legal waiver for be able to still go to work, but in an isolated room. So since March, what it was here, March 15th, I guess, I was literally going in a building that was empty. It was me, other one or two colorists, occasionally a couple of engineering for three months. Absolutely no client. Um, all the unnecessary or supporting personnel was home, working from home, and they still work from home. That's for the first uh, four months. Then we start to have selected client coming in, uh, you know, temperature check and all the stuff. So for us, for me in particular, the first five months, six months, I did uh, six movies, but they were all shot pre-pandemic. Yeah. So now we have that gap of how many months it will be, I don't know, four or five, where we finish everything that was shot before, Nobody shot for four months. And even if you shoot now, it will take time before going to post because of the VFX, because of the editing. Now, I, I most likely work on the next Roland Emmerich movie. Uh, he was supposed to start in April. It didn't. It starts now. And I know it's a big VFX movie, so it will take 
from today at least a full year. So we have this gap, it's this delay between the pandemic started, but we still have work where now people's restarting, but post-production dry up because we run out of work. Yeah. We have work n just not even close to what it should be. Yeah, yeah, I'm the same. I'm, I'm going to movie next month and that's one that started up since, uh, since they started shooting. And Australia's not so bad they've managed to get things going again, which is good. Yes, but, you yeah. guys made much better than what we did here. <laughs> yeah, it's, well, it's just, a, but who knows? Who knows what's around the corner? That's the, the scary thing with it, isn't it? We don't quite know yeah. what's going to happen. Um, so let's let's go back to your the roster of colorists. How does it work out who gets what job? Is that down to your relationships with the producers, directors, DPs, or sometimes they come to company three and go, well, who would be good for this film? How does it work? The majority is uh, via, you know, previous clients. You work with this producer, you work with that co with the director, the director of photography. They tend to come back to you and see if you can work together. Uh, in other instances, you have um, a studio that say, well, we need to finish a movie. And we try to match the characteristic of the colorist, the style, with whatever this, the studio wants. The, um, I think about half of the production I do are rec returning clients, and the other half are just new people that say, hey, we need somebody and we may have a shootout, me and another colorist or whatever, and, or you're just lucky that you have a gap and you can fit in that gap while the other colorist is busy. You know, a lot of things, a lot of planning can, can do or undo your relationship because you're busy simply. Yeah. And, and that's about it. I mean, the most important thing is catering your client. If you work with somebody, you try to cater them and work with them again. Yeah, I say that to to young people coming up in the industry. That you can't put a value on how important that is and those relationships are. You just never know when somebody's going to come back round again or come back in your door or suddenly they go on a journey somewhere and they're suddenly making bigger movies and you can go on that journey. One of the very first post-production supervisor at work. I, was, I think it was my second or third movie. I met him again 15 years later and he's uh, the head of the ABC for um, TV series. So you may piss him off or do a bad job and suddenly you have somebody in the wrong place that will never give you work again. That was not my case, but just to give you <laughs> an idea yeah. that somebody that you work today with, tomorrow may be the guy giving you the job. Yeah, yeah. So let's, uh, I've watched your Netflix show, um, The Old Guard. So that's- H Did you see the HDR? I've seen the HDR, yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we'll talk about that because I think a lot of people have Netflix and they're not sure they're even paying for the HDR Netflix where in Australia it's called premium, I think, and you have to pay a bit more a month. Now, I've spoken to people who go, yeah, yeah, I've seen the HDR. And I've said, well, did you see the Dolby Vision thing come up? Uh, no. Well, you sure you think you're seeing the HDR? And they're going, yeah. I said, I don't think you are. You've got to pay a bit more money to get that. And you've got to see that Dolby Vision thing come up. Uh, 
Yeah, it's a bit confusing. I don't know about Amazon. I haven't got Amazon. I don't know whether that comes up the same. Uh, but Amazon does. doesn't have the Amazon doesn't have Dolby. They usually do HDR ten. Right. Okay. So, well, the TV should tell you when the TV, the TV switch mode to HDR. It should tell you HDR. Yes. Um, now, the first thing I want to ask you, I'm going to interview yes. you. How yeah, HDR right. felt to you? Uh, I felt it was on the on the limit of just you pushed it, and I could see where you've pushed it, and I can see where you're just getting the most out of some of those highlights, which was good. So it was good. I mean, I've seen some stuff that's been pushed too hard, and yeah. I'm looking at it, and I'm going, I just can't see that this is better than what I would have seen before. Now, I know I'm... Older school, I've seen a lot of film, I've graded a lot of film, I'm very used to how it should be, and HDR is maybe more for younger people that are coming at things, but I think it was good. You know, yeah. I think you've made use of where you can make use of the differences and just put those differences. And I think the other really cool thing is what we sometimes forget is the better colour volume that we're getting in the HDR yeah. as well, which is something we definitely definitely improve it it's not just about you know brighter pictures that a lot of people think it is the the idea i see i see hdr explored as a medium um in multiple ways um most of the people i see they tend to explore the darkness of it or they tend to explore the extreme highlights so there is a, an extreme difference between where your subject is and your extreme highlights the way I approached the old guard, but it was also the way I approach most of the HDR I do is try to preserve what the original tonal distribution is as a starting point. I will give you some extra different highlights because now I can, but I don't yes. want those highlights to be overpowering you. No. So when in the old guard you go to the desert, I want you to feel the heat of the desert. So the whole image gets brighter, not just the highlights, not just mm -hmm. the sun. Yeah. So I, I tend to, for the most part, preserve the original intent and put it on a neat level that I know your TV can, can stand and give you the whole image instead of just a detail in the highlights back. Um, so far, I ask you the question because I tend to ask this question to everybody that saw Old Guard or any other of my projects. Yes. Because it's a slightly different approach that I see other people do. And I, I keep wondering, you know, asking myself, am I using the tool in a sensible way? Um, client, when they see my HDR, almost feel like it's still my movie. It's not a different movie than we did for theatrical. But, it's not shouldn't be in my opinion should be just a better version of your movie not a different one yeah i i think in the beginning there was quite a lot of difference in some of the versions and people were going oh it's hdr and we can do this and do that yeah and, and then it got different and then, then depending on what order you're doing that that was so people who want to see this this is on netflix uh it's been out probably just a few weeks yeah, about, about a it's, month uh, and a half or month, month and a yeah. half. Yeah, something like that. Yeah. And it, so, I think also now you have Babysitter 2 that just came out last week. Yeah. 
And because it's a very dark movie, it's still HDR, but I approach HDR with a slightly different philosophy in mind. So if you want to see two different approaches to HDR, one with very bright exterior mixed with some darkness, and the other one is the opposite. It's mostly dark exterior mixed with some brightness. Cool. So how I explore the, the, the medium at this point. Good. I'll go, I'll go and check that one out as well. And they, because uh, Netflix will only want Dolby Vision, don't they? Yes. They only so want how are you, because I know there's a bit of a pushback on the whole one size fits all, if you like, and we're just deriving the SDR out of the trims, the metadata trims. How do you feel the SDR is on those, those, those movies? So Old Guard was an extreme challenge because we started the post-production right when the pandemic hit. So I have my DP, uh, Barry, one of the two DP on the movie, Barry, that is in uh, England. The director that is here in LA, I'm in LA. So you have streaming, we use Streambox. You can only stream the 709 because you can't really stream HDR at this point at home. So we started the post-production for the old guard and we decided to approach it in, uh, in multiple steps. The first step is we do the bulk of the color correction in 709 using Streambox. Once, um, after most of the decisions were done, I start to see an HDR mapping that was done in ACES. Then we had one or two days where the director, uh, was able to access a facility with an X300 and we did a point-to-point X300 and we did a full trim on the HDR. That became our master. The 709 with the probable transformation to P3 become the master for the theatrical distribution in case they will ever release a theatrical. There was, yes. that was the original intent to be, you know, yeah. sometimes it doesn't happen. And then I, I do something that is not Dolby recommended, and I will not recommend anybody to do it unless they know exactly what they're doing. I don't do the Dolby trim using the actual analysis of the shots. I, I use specifically test frame, and I only do the analysis of test frame to give me the best transformation or the final piece back to the original 709. If you think in this way, it was an ACES project. We went from 709 to HDR with a single transformation. Yes. I want to find the Dolby transformation that goes back to the original 709 as close as reasonably possible. Yeah. Ain't perfect, but I don't want to have Dolby analyzing all my shot again, creating all these little differences yeah. just to chase the differences while I already have a 709. Every time I have the ability to do, for whatever reason, you start from theatrical, so you start from a P3 or a 709, you go to HDR. If I can go to HDR with a single major transformation plus stream, there should be an easy way to go back to SDR. So the 709 for the old guard, it is fairly representative of the original intended 709 that DP and director agree upon. Yeah. And it's weird because in a way, the only way you can get what you want is not doing what Dolby tells you to do. That's why I say to other people, just, 
I, I have my battle with Dolby. They hate me. Uh, if they wish, they wish I don't do what I do. But it was the same thing. I do, I'm doing um, Star Wars. And the director of photography made an HDR that is very conservative and it's a choice. I actually had this discussion with a friend of mine. There's somebody blogging that it's a fake HDR, whatever. You know, the client approved it, okay? Mm. We showed different version, different needs level, and he approved it with a single transformation from his theatrical to HDR. Therefore, we try to find the best transformation from the HDR Dolby to the 709. And Dolby was really, really mad about it. I was like, who am I to tell the director of photography of Star Wars that what he is approving that is of his liking is not good? <laughs> I'm not breaking the system. I'm not doing anything that is particularly stupid. The image looked good. Yes, I did not analyze your own, your whole thing, but I'm getting an image that it's approved. Yes, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so, so Dolby, I have a bit of, um, the way I do the Dolby trim pass for 709, it's different than other people. And I think I get it close enough to what I want. Um, and also it depends on what do you do in an HDR. I like to construct uh, the main tonal range and look of the world as a one global transformation under which your movie will take place. If you wanna simplify what I'm saying, let's say they have a, um, a lot that you like on top of everything, okay? Yeah. It's not, it may not be a lot, but let's simplify it. If I have a single transformation, it means that everything you do in the movie, it's contained between that range. If I can find an elegant way to get that HDR range back to 709, I will do it because it maintain the characteristic of all the choices that we had shot to shot, scene to scene. If I'm doing a documentary where you don't have that, where every shot is a Picasso, then of course, um, a more per shot analysis will bring the shot more in line. For theatrical and for TV, where usually, and Netflix was really adamant for years about single transformation at the back of everything. Then I want a single transformation to go to the 709. Yeah. So, but ASIS is good for that, wasn't it? So did you have an ASIS transform going back down or is that some other way you got back down? So, ISIS is not good for that. Okay. This is the problem. Let's say that you have um, an approved 709 master yes. and you want to go to HDR. So you flip your ODT to yep. whatever, a uh, thousand needs as a starting point. Yep. What ASIS 1.3 does at the moment that they, they are telling me that 2.0 will be different, but we have to stay to what we got right now. It basically keep the bulk of the color space where it is, and it just open the highlights. Yeah. And that is frankly ridiculous because the first thing you will do is tame those highlights down because now they're overpowering the subject. Yeah. So what I did in that case, it's a series of transformation. The, the general idea is 
we're still within ACES, you know that in Resolve, for example, because I use Resolve, you are in uh, ACCCT, yeah. because that's uh, what I was using. So I put Resolve Color Transformation to apply the RRT ODT for 709. Then I map that 709 with the highlight I wanted to the needs I wanted. And then I transform that back to um, the ACES HDR, um, whatever it is, 2084 hundred nits. Yeah. That coupled, coupled with the exact same ODTRRT give me exactly the result I wanted. So in a way to do the HDR the way I want it, to guarantee that the tonal distribution was consistent between 709 and HDR, I had to bypass ACES itself. Yeah. The other beef that I have, if, like in my case, the client approve a 709 master, I want the DCP to look exactly like that. Yes. If you just do a DCP from the 709, it will do extra things to it, and it will look like a new P3 master from the same source to the XYZ color space. That yeah. is fine, except that's not what the client approved. We yeah. were under the constraint to work in 709 because of the pandemic. Otherwise, we, we would have started in P3, obviously. So again, I need to tell ACES, please don't do this. Just limit to 709. The client approved it. There is no color that hit the boundary anyway. So even if you give me P3, it doesn't really matter. And you have to basically force ACES not to do that. Yeah, yeah that, that might be work. No, it's a spam. We receive a stupid amount of spam in our phone here in the United States. It's not even funny. Every you have five phone call, one is legit, and four they're not. Really? Oh, and some of them, they just you pick up, hello, and they close the phone. Uh, yeah. yeah. Let me do an Italian thing. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so let's mate, let's talk about it. So let's. How did you get started? So. So uh, where you were born in Italy and then you've come to the States. How, how did that come around? How did you end up in LA? Do you want the long or the short story? Oh, yeah, the interesting story. People want to know how they okay. can go from one place to another and how people yeah. have done it. Yeah, yeah. well, uh, then I will answer how people can do that. Um, so I grew up in a small place outside of Turin and a farming community. So my, my first extraction i'm a farmer at heart at heart heart um but that being a farmer means especially in italy at the time being poor having no money <laughs> and, all, and all those things that come with it uh, we were a small farmer market my first job was actually uh, assembly line for um, a company that was doing the old uh, uh, needle printer you remember yeah so I was in assembly line assembling those things. And as a 16-year-old as a kid, in assembly line, you want to shoot yourself because every 21 seconds, you do the same thing that you just did 21 seconds ago. So I started to study in the internet, uh, not in the internet, sorry, in the, in the evening, internet didn't exist but back in the 87, 88. Uh, I started to do in the evening, um, Electronics, study for becoming an electronic engineer, um, you know, high degree engineer. And when I, when I finished that, I got hired by the main broadcast in Italy, the RAI, um, 
And that was just the best thing that can happen to a technician. The first thing that they do is training you. So, okay, we got you from the school, forget about that. Now we train you exactly how TV work. Just to give you an idea, we went to the R&D building for three weeks, four weeks, whatever bloody was. Uh, at one point, the guy that was training us on the color system, the TV color system, come in, give us a bunch of books. And, um, and then he turned to the blackboard and say something like, now I'm gonna tell you what we did. That we, it felt silly immediately. And then you realize that engineer, a 25 year old invented PAL. <laughs> There's one of the engineer in the really? team, they invented the PAL system. Wow. So you have the guy that invented the color system training you how TV works. So I had a, a fantastic training um, and I worked for the broadcast for about nine to 10 years, I don't remember. And I joined the broadcast the moment where the computer start to be part of the post-production. So do start to do VFX, uh, compositing, chroma key. It was so fascinating. I was, in, uh, was doing support for the graphic department and it was fascinating to me and I wanna do that. So in the early 2000s, I moved to Rome from Turin, tried to pursue that career. It went immediately sideways, but I got hired by Quantel. And Quantel at the time came out with the EQ and the IQ machine. First machine in the world that can contain a full uncompressed 2K movie and do basic color with it. Nobody knew how to use the machine. But again, I went to Quantel, I did the training. So not only I know how to repair the machine or do troubleshooting, I actually know how to use it. Chinachita at the time took two machines. Um, uh, a fellow from England, uh, uh, Steve Shaw came with us and kind of trained us how to do DI, what DI is. Yes. And I, I was really fascinated by the, by the that kind of work. Now so we're I talking think, about early 2000s, aren't we? Yes, Around we're talking, time. I would say 2001, two and three. So it's early, like Lord of the Rings time, very early DI yes. sort of. Yes, so the first uh, long movie done in Italy, uh, full length movie done in Italy as a DI, pure DI is Piazza delle Cinque Lune. I was in the team, Sergio uh, Cremasco was the colorist. I was in the team doing everything else, just put it together, be sure that it works, do the, do the editorial stuff. Yeah. My first uh, uh, piece was something for another Italian movie, was a, a two minutes um, battle of El Alamein. They were shot very dark with a lot of VFX and they, at the time you were filming out the VFX, be sure that it works and they couldn't make it work because it was so all over the place. So we actually decided to do the full DI of those two minutes of the battle. We just grab it, balance everything as a full scene and film out as a full scene and it worked. So that was my first DI slash colorist job. Then um, things in Italy went um, sideways because of the way in Italy we work. But Steve said, you know, I have chances for you to work with me. Uh, I can send you in places, you help them do a movie, and then you come back. I said, I would love that. So he sent me to Los Angeles, to uh, Photocam at the time. 
they needed somebody to help them finish one of the first movies with these Quantel machines. And my expectation was to go there, help them, show them how the machine worked and come back. And they basically say, no, no, sit there, help us finish the movie. And at the end they say, you know, we realize you're not a colorist because obviously that was what my second project. You think you know what you're doing, but you're not. But I had all the technical and engineer strength to make this work. So what they hired me and they did, we put a color timer next to you from the lab. The color timer will help you understand the color, what the client is expecting, and the language between you and the client that is very important. And that's Dan Mascarella that unfortunately just passed away a couple of months ago. He was my mentor for, oh my God, 15 years. The last thing color, did, it's color timer, isn't it? Color yeah. timer. The color, last thing we yeah. did together was Dunkirk. Oh. Um, he did the, uh, the film side, I did the, the digital side. And that was his last job, then he retired after Dunkirk. Okay. And, and, and then, you know, you start to do some project, understand what the photography is, what the client is expecting for the photography. And I actually learned to color almost photochemically. So you have, um, at the time, because we still have to go out to film, you have a film, full, true film representation, we get the scanner, and I only use printer light to put the shot in the best light possible. I still do that. I mean, if you think about um, any of the movies I'm finishing right now, they still have a global look for the movie. And my habit is just use basic control to bring the photography to life, to make the subject look the best. Then if you have time and willingness, we can do whatever you want. So it's, yeah, I agree. It's about respecting the cinematography, isn't it? And don't, absolutely, I absolutely. often say, don't stamp on the images of respect for the intent from the... Star Wars, for example, Steve Yedlin AAC is a fantastic cinematographer, but also he's, he's a good color science. So he characterizes film, he characterizes what you want to do with the, both the negative and the Alexa. They shot the majority with film, but they had some of the Alexa uh, material for the VFX. Um, and then they had the CGI as well. So you have somebody know exactly the whole path between the capture of the light and the presentation on the screen. They know how to light a scene. They has a good light budget, best camera, best set director. I mean, the shot come to me and I'm looking at Steve and say, okay, what do you want? A point of red, click, and the color is done. Yeah. So for wow. a movie like that, like you say, the first thing is just don't fuck it up. You don't, you don't have to do much, yeah. just don't fuck it up. <laughs> <laughs> oh, great. So then obviously then you're, uh, and then you just worked your way up and because you've done like a hundred DIs or something like that, haven't you? Yes. Get one under so, your belt, you do another one, build exactly. yourself up again. You, you, learn, you learn from one movie to the next, to the next, to the next. And, uh, and then, you know, at one point you get a movie that is slightly bigger and people start to trust your ability more. And then you get the next movie that is slightly bigger and then they trust you more. Unfortunately, in the job we do, you're only as good as the movie you did. Uh, to give you an idea, there is um, um, a Russian colorist that work in, uh, oh my God, um, in Oslo. 
Copenhagen, don't remember, Neurali Kuznov. Mm. Um, I really like him. He's really, really, really talented, but he's not working in Hollywood. So many, not many people know him. Is that kind of, you are lucky to be in the right place and do that right movie to make you known versus you're absolutely fucking amazing, but you work in a place where people don't know you. Yeah. Uh, and that's, that's still the case with, with Hollywood. I know because a lot of movies getting shot around the world, but still most of them are getting posted back in, in your town, aren't they? And uh, it's they obviously do. very competitive there because there's a lot of good guys and girls all over the town. Well, and uh, it seems to be where the finishing is. It's also, um, you know, a bigger facility like Company Tree or Photocam or, you know, Picture Post, whatever you want to use. We have the infrastructure. We have the security level that the studio wants. Um, you have all the support for editorial VFX, you name it. And you have the colorists that already work on these big movies. So we now have the dialogue with the client. The, the most important thing for a colorist is not just how you move your hands, but how you move your tongue talking with the client. Yeah, Respecting the client, um, understanding what they want, find a way to dialogue. Uh, um, I did um, um, an advertisement for uh, um, The Great Gatsby, so Buds Luhrmann. Buds yeah. Luhrmann is an amazing, amazing talent but he doesn't have a technical vocabulary. So he expressed what he wants in terms of feelings. I want to feel more drama on this shot. I don't have the drama button. What's the drama button? So understanding what the, what the client is asking, what is in his mind and translate that in an actual action or non-action like it's, I need to tell the client what he has at the moment is fine. That is, I would say, more than a half of the skill of a colorist is the, what we call the bartending skill. And I know colorists, they are good colorists, not great colorists, but their bartending skill is so good. They can sell ice to the penguin and make it for a premium because that ice is the best ice in Antarctica. <laughs> I know exactly. I know exactly what you mean. Yeah, it's funny. That's good. Sorry, I have That's too much good. headroom. No, no, you're good. You're good. So let's. Uh, I want to talk. You talked about Dunkirk, and I know that that Christopher Nolan, big fan of film. Yeah. And I think that was finished on film, so lab time, traditional way, and then, as I understand, the DI that you did had to match that yeah. print that they'd made. Is that right? So how did you go about that? The, I express the work we did on Dunkirk on the uh, DCP side. We spent three months to characterize the 65 millimeter lookup table and the color correction was one light for each reel. Wow. Literally. So we made the lookup table working so amazingly tight that we just scanned the interpositive and I was doing a little trim to make the interpositive correcting, you know, the error of scanning, playback, the interpositive split screen with the actual print from the negative has to match. Right. 
And he's in watching this with you, this side-by-side -side right up to that final thing? Is he quite involved? Um, I did. He was doing the mix at that point. Yeah. So I did by myself all the work up to the presentation of the side-by-side. -side. Then him and Hoite uh, Van Oitma were in the, in the room. We just play. Uh, I think I did a, a small trim um, for each reel. And it's probably... We are down now to metameric issue. If you have a black and white on a print and the same black and white on a projector, to my eye, once the, once the calibration is correct, my eye is slightly greener. Uh, to Steve, there was one of the producers is slightly magenta. So that's a metameric issue. So yes. when to my eye, it was matched to Nolan and uh, uh, Hoyt, it was slightly off. So I just, I know how much it is, we put it in, we put in all the reel and we are good. Um, that was a highly, highly skillful matching. It's funny because seeing, saying that a color dunker is kind of a incorrect, but it's correct at the same time because the digital version matched the film as best as technologically possible. Yeah, and then the other thing that I think people sort of forget is that as the colorist are you overseeing all the versions that you make now or are you just making the hero version then someone else is making the deliverables because there's a lot of deliverables isn't there now yeah so it really depends uh the colorist preference and how much busy you are sometimes the client preference like let's talk about dunkirk for a second Dan Mascarella did the photochemical uh, versions, 35, uh, 5 perf, 65, and IMAX. I did the DCP theatrical version for the 2 to 1 aspect ratio, 2.2 to 1 aspect ratio. Uh, IMAX did the, their IMAX versions, so they are slightly different. And when it go down to do the, the video version, Christopher Nola used uh, Costas as a colorist already on the other movies, in the uh, Inception, in the Batman movies. So he wants him to do it. And he's also work at Photocam. So um, I, I handed to Costas the material, handed to Costas our lookup table, and he started just finally touching where we are because Nolan doesn't really want anything different. Uh, now that I move away from Photocom, Costas finished Tenet in the same fashion. Because of COVID, they couldn't do, if I understood correctly, they couldn't do a full side-by-side -side match, but they were doing the photochemical version. Costas was going to see the photochemical version in progress and then do color matching in his bay uh, by eye. I mean, he did also more movie than me. Uh, he know what he's doing. Um, for most of the other movies, I tend to do every single version, unless I'm so swamped that I can't. Yeah. yeah. But I like, uh, because you know, you spend two weeks, three weeks talking about the photography, every single decision that you took, you know why you took it. And I wanna be sure that every version represent as close as reasonably possible the intended photography. So the original, vision is preserved in every one of those. Yeah, I, I know Costas. He's been, he's been at Photochem man and boy, hasn't he? Yeah. He's been he there a been long there time. Freaking 30 years. Um, 
<laughs> but see, it's the same thing. Until you do a big movie, nobody knows you. And he's probably does better than me as a colorist because he's been doing that for 30 years. Yeah. Only doing this one for 20, not even 17. <laughs> it's cool, it's cool, man. Uh, what do you, like, if you're, so most of your things, how do you approach a Netflix TV series different to a feature film, or are they basically the same? Or if you did a Netflix show and they go, well, it's never going to go on cinema, it's just going to be like uh, The Crown or something like that, so it's just going to be TV, how do you approach it differently? You're obviously on a monitor, are you adding grain the same way? How, what's the differences in your thinking? Um, philosophically, I approach in the same way. I like to create a global aesthetic vision for the piece. And for the piece, I mean the whole season. And treat every single episode as a reel of a big movie, if you wish. Yeah. So you may have differences in certain part of the reels, but the general feeling has to be a cohesive, coherent world. Um, so I tend to do the same thing, creating a full vision to stay on top of everything, looking at the amount of grain, looking at the amount of uh, contrast, color, whatever, it, whatever is the characteristic of the look. Then I go in, deal with the scene, deal with the shot and whatever I have to do. For me, consistency throughout is paramount. I, if the scene is not balanced, and it doesn't work, I don't even start to do the single shot. And it's, it's a little bit, you know, what they were doing in the old days. You have a film stock, a negative and a print. They will give you a global tonal range with a certain contrast. Within that, you do your photography and you do basic balancing to bring the shot in line. Because I've been training that way by a color yeah. timer, I still do that and it's very effective. Um, even when I do theatrical releases, one thing I do, usually the first week, you do all the absolute color decisions, how much bright a scene has to be, how much dark, which is the kind of color, the tint. After that, you do a lot of nitpicking, but the bulk of the color is done. So what I tend to do, it's actually getting one of the X300 in front of me, and I start to watch them on glass for couple of reasons. First, I start to be blind in sense of any glasses. <laughs> and while at the monitor's distance, I don't. So I strain my eye much less. The image per se is brighter with a bigger contrast. So I see little differences much better, especially on the black and what you can yeah. see in projection. I start to see how the grain affects the image, also in a smaller screen. And then there are considerations that we have to keep in mind because we don't just generate an image in a vacuum. So to speak, uh, if you think about uh, the HBO Game of Thrones episode that was too dark. Yes. Probably if you look at that on X300, it's fine. Yeah. But we know that the image, once it's done, will be compressed, will be sent to a pipe that is just a spigot instead of being the yeah. pipe that we need. And yeah. the calibration automaty is what it is. So starting to look in on a monitor, it gives me an idea if, geez, we really are too dark here. 
and we know the compression will destroy this signal, especially with horror movies. There is always this, make it darker and then the compression will just destroy it. Or we put this amount of grain and suddenly the grain is not there because the compression, the first thing that cuts is the high frequency detail, grain yeah. namely. I don't know if I deviate from what you asked me. No, no, that, that was good. No, it is. Yeah, it's basically the same. You know, we're still making the images. It's definitely, obviously, if you know it's TV, but the problem we have now is that it's, we're going so many different places with our images, aren't we? And iPads and phones and yeah. the whole yeah. thing behind HDR, a lot of it is behind for phones and people watching on tablets. Do you, do you have grain going in everything all the time? Or yes. does it depend on everything? Okay. I, and how I are tend you doing to, that? I will challenge you to do something like this. Get an image, a close-up, like exactly my close-up. Yeah. Um, shot with a beautiful camera like an Alexa with prime lenses with perfect mm. lighting. I'm smooth like a baby button, right? Yes. If you add just a tiny bit of grain, your eye will perceive the image as sharper. It's weird. Yes. But it's because we feel that there is detail there, the image looks sharper. Mm. There is also grain help you if you have flat surfaces during the compression phase to reduce some of the, of the banding that will occur naturally because it's a dithering. Yeah. Third is, I really like grain. I really like film. So yes. I, I, I tend to add this characteristic because I like it. To me, is probably a relic from the past. Like, I like to put elation in the highlights. Yes. Because film does that. And it's, yes. yeah. it's, an, it's a visual expression to me, the talk of an era that is bygone of film. Do we need it? Nah. Do we want to go into discussion between live grain, cine grain, resolve grain, which one is the, who, who, who fucking care really? You can use whatever grain, grain feel good to you. I use resolve grain. It's fast. It give me what I need. Um, even if it's not technically true filmic. Eh, it's fine. Are you, and you putting that in pre you doing any color correction in like the camera space? Are you putting that at the top of your, like your node tree or does it sit at the end after you've balanced everything? It depends. It, it does depends. Yes. Do you want to simulate a negative process? Do you want to simulate a print process? Do you want to simulate both? If yeah. you want to simulate a negative process should be the first thing you do to a shot. So every other tool, the contrast and whatever, yes. manipulate the grain as well. He, that is going, you know, one step too far. I like to simulate just print grain. Therefore, for me, it's the last thing before still in logarithmic space of the camera before yes. the lookup table look or whatever is your main yes. word look. Yes. So I tend, I tend to do it in that way. Okay, yeah. Yeah, that makes sense depending on where you need to do it. Yeah. I think that's good. Um, mate, I just wanted talk about before we wrap this up it's been really cool now the csi the colorist society international yeah now you're involved you're a member of that aren't you yes now, I'm, not, I'm not as active as i should but yeah you know, i wonder I, that yeah I, I find that i feel there's there's sometimes a bit of a pushback against it 
And I don't know maybe yeah. why that is, or people think they don't need it. Uh, what do you, what are your what are your thoughts? Because I see it's going in the right direction, and it's still very new society. Now, one thing that we as a colorist need to decide in a way is what we want to do with our profession. Do we want to be uh, an elite group of individual, each one fending by themselves uh, in the world, or we want to try to make uh, a society of like-minded artists that together we can have um, a critical mass to ask for, for example, being recognized. So talking about um, the Academy, I'm a member of the Academy of Motion Science and Picture, we are not even considered to be artists by the Academy of Motion Picture. Just recently, we are admitted on artistic merits. All right. <laughs> and there is the problem where we cannot do the job we do if the photography is not there. But at the same time, what you see on a screen is not the original photography. It's the original photography enhanced by one of us. Yes. So find the fine line where who did what, it's kind of a silly. We know that the colorist did his job and we try to put our artistry and knowledge into doing it. You don't want to give a full Academy Award to the colorist that even if I think we deserve it, fine, just share it. Just cinematography, um, whatever, um, Lubetsky, color team lead, uh, Walter Lopato, whatever it was. But say, for example, the, the Revenant, that is basically what started to take the Academy. Lubezki is an amazing, fantastic director of photography. They will, I will never say the opposite. Yeah. However, he manipulated the image heavily in the eye for five months. Yeah. So do we see the original photography or we see the original photography with the expertise and the love of a series of colorists that worked on the movie? Should we not acknowledge that? So back to your original question. If we can make the group of colorists a critical mass and say, we actually want to be recognized as artists, not just a merit button, button pusher. You may have probably, you know, two or three obstacles. One is obviously director of photography don't want to recognize and acknowledge that, especially the older generation. And certain colorists, they are now at the top of the food chain, don't care. They have a perfectly good career, success, money, clients, they may not need that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a few obstacles and I don't think we can clamber for recognition recognition comes through slowly people understanding the role and that they sort of got to come I, to I, us no no go. no i i respectfully disagree on that yeah recognition unless you ask for it nobody will give it to you right they will okay. give you the, they will give you the next job they will not yeah. give you an award for it there is no participation right. medal for what we are doing if you want at the academy to be recognized you need hundreds of colorists to be a member of the academy. Yeah. Those hundred people want to become a branch. That branch will start to lobby for recognizing. Yeah. That yeah. doesn't happen. 
I'm sorry, right. director of photography no. will not give you his award no. out of yeah. heart. No, no. So far, right. at the night of the Academy, I haven't seen a director of photography say thanks to his team. Not once. No. no. I seen so it at the I, I seen yeah. it at AC night. Um, yeah. Lubetsky, just to say a name, he actually acknowledged Scott and his team to help in doing, well, I don't remember if it was Gravity or Revenant, one of the two. Um, but at the Academy night, it's all about them. But we know that without us, the movie will not look like that. Yes, yeah. So I, it's a very, I, I it's a very yeah. difficult find balance to find between, A, we are here to help you, but also we want to be recognized. It's like, you know, mix editing and mix, um, sound editing, sound mixing. Sound editing put the stuff together, but it doesn't work until you do the mixing. And up to last year, there were two different Oscars, one for mixing, one for editing. Now it's one category where you acknowledge the team. Yeah. That's what actually I would like to see. And probably yeah. I will just retire and never see that. But you know, yeah. at one point, um, animation was not considered a form of artistry worth of an Academy Award, and now it is. Yeah, so, it, it, might, it may well happen down the road. Uh, I think the Academy is going to be a really tough one, but I think the CSI is a stepping stone to that. Yes, And it it's a stepping stone, and, and certainly probably not where you are, but where I am, like I'm up against a lot of people, these, these iMac warrior people who are holding their hand up to grade everything. And some producers at a lower level can't tell the difference. They don't know the difference. So that CSI accreditation can, you know, gives you some standing, can give yeah. you some credit. And if it's a case of where we're sharing some more knowledge, we now have an Australia and New Zealand branch where yes. we can maybe do some little meetings and we can promote ourselves a bit more. You can go on the website and showcase work that we've done, which is good internally, but it's good for producers wanting to come to Australia and going, well, have we got some talent? We need some people to do dailies here. What sort of, we may have to finish in Australia if it's a co-pro. What sort of talent is in Australia and New Zealand? So yeah. it's going in the right direction. You know, it's a, it's a slow thing, but, you know, I think it, it's, it's still got merit. It will. And like you say, the, the ability to have a place where we can share ideas, share knowledge, I think that it's all valid. And we, we should yeah. do that more often. Yeah. Um, one personal fear, if you wish, that when I started 17 years ago, there were only hundreds of people that could access the actual machine. They were costing freaking a million dollars each. Yeah. Now, you have literally millions of people that want to do our job and the seats are still only a few hundreds. So there, there is, there is a, an inflation of people that want to do this job and only a few places where they can do it for, for real. So yeah. that's um, for everybody that start right now, I really have no, <laughs> no recommendation. I feel kind of a sorry for them because they go in a world where there are a lot of us and a lot and, of people that already know what to do. And the hard thing is it, you, it's very hard to learn like you and I learned with sitting with mentors and learning with yep. people and looking at what you do and asking that little question at the end of the day, but especially during these COVID times and we don't know when it's going back. 
we're just get struggling to get these shows over the line. But just these assistant roles are just less than what they were. Just not the same, yeah. is it? Yeah, and uh, and you know, like you, like me, you had a mentorship. Um, now you have, you know, millions of hours of internet content that can tell you how to do this, how to do that, how to make the Joker look. I mean, that guy, I just want to, I put my hair, my head on the hair every time I see a, a video from him. Um, but what does not tell you is the two fundamental problem. One is, is not your goddamn movie. Most of the time, you don't have the choice to make the look. The director or director of photography are the one making the look and you are a very skillful artist executing something. Let's make a different um, analogy. When Michelangelo did the Sistine Chapel, maybe he won a paint a bucolic scene of naked people fishing. His mandate was to do a religious deception of the Bible. He has to do that if he wants the job. Yeah. Even if what he wanted paint, it's literally, I don't know, he all his lover in a big gigantic meadow or whatever. So we need to be that Michelangelo. We need to be the guy that know what to do, but knowing in the movie is not yours. And the other skill that all those um, YouTubers don't tell you, and actually they tell you the fucking wrong attitude, is the bartending thing. Understanding when what you're trying to say to the client is damaging your relationship to the client. You're not there to win a battle. If the client won in red and red is awful, after you made your objection, just suck it up and make it red. Yeah. Um, talking again about some of these people in internet, um, we are the colors, we decide, we make the look. No, no, bro, that's not how it works. It will work in small project where the client is asking for your input. But generally speaking, nobody's asking me my input. It's, we have an idea. I'll help you get their idea to the screen. It's, like I say, it's difficult to tell people what to do is, uh, me, you, we, we learned the hard way. There was nobody training us. It's, uh, you try something is good or wrong and you try something else is good or wrong. Kids nowadays, they just go out in the internet and they think they know what the fuck they are doing even when they don't. I actually have to tell you a story where the very mm -hmm. first movie that I did at Photocam, I thought I did a decent job. You know, you think you did a decent job. And we restore some of the image literally 15 years later because the client want to put those images, I don't remember where. And I'm looking at it and honestly, my heart sunk. They look like shit. You think you do a good job, but you don't. You don't have the experience. So I actually saw the client and I apologized to him because we could have done a better job. And he said, you know, yes, we could have done a better job, but nobody knew what we were doing at the time. Yeah. So seeing people with zero credit in internet telling other people how to do things, you're creating, you're perpetrating a bunch of people they don't know what they're doing. They think they do, but they don't. Yeah. yeah. It's sad. It is sad, but unfortunately, it's about it. way it is, isn't it? It's the way it is. You know, yeah. If those are my competitors, please bring them on. I would never <laughs> run out of work. <laughs> the, the thing that I was uh, uh, mentioning, somebody pointed me to a website where they do 
analysis of HDR and the guy did the analysis of the last JD and was complaining there was fake HDR and he did something like hundreds of those analyses and he has hundreds of thousands of followers and he's probably making money out of yeah. bad mouth the other people's job. Yeah. yeah. I want him going in front of fucking Steve Yedlin and tell Steve Yedlin that his HDR is fake. Uh, this has been great. I'm I'm sorry we couldn't do it for real in color yeah. too, you know, and go to the facility and then go and have a nice beer or a good uh, meal somewhere. But this has been really good. Um, yep. Now, thanks for joining. And I hope that, you know, things get back to a little bit more normal in LA for you guys there. How can people reach you and find you? Where can they get hold of you? Uh, you know, I'm pretty active in, uh, in Facebook. Um, you can find me in Facebook very easily. And a lot of people reach me just via Messenger or via my Instagram profile. I usually am pretty good at answering. Uh, and I'm probably helping people too much <laughs> because I have only so much time. <laughs> yeah. No, you, you, hats off to you. You are really good with helping people with questions and people coming up and obviously the company three website you got a profile there haven't you profile so, I mean, if people have a you know if they have a budget just come come to company three yeah. we have you know we can serve micro budget mini budget big budget big blockbuster movie my personal approach is it doesn't matter how much how much money you have you have a vision i will help you to put the vision on the screen regardless if it's a $200 million movie or a small indie they only have. I mean, one of the movies I did a few weeks ago, literally they had a million for everything, for the shoot, for the post, for everything. And when they come down to post-production, they had peanuts, literally peanuts. I, was like, I don't care. Within the time we have, I'll do the best work possible. Yeah. Yeah, and that's sometimes some of the best work you do or the things you look back on and you're most proud of are some of those jobs, I find. Cool. Some of the indie, actually, indie movie, usually you have a little bit more freedom of doing try things, where in yeah. big movies, you don't have much freedom to try things. Yeah. All right. Well, that's a great way to finish. Uh, thanks a lot. Thanks for everybody for listening. Uh, yeah, thank you, guys. Th thanks a lot, Warden. You can catch up on all the previous actual live Colour 2 recordings from the previous seasons on our website, icolorist.com. And you can also go there for any sort of training or any general colour information that you need. Enjoy. We'll see you on the next one.